This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, I am not one for controversy. Uh, I don't like conflict. I try to like avoid it as much as possible, sometimes to a fault. But uh, I feel the need to be a little controversial this morning. Um, I may, I may get kicked off the staff for preaching heresy, but it's important for you guys to know. Um, I like country music. So um, I figure this is the Midwest, so at least half of you should be okay with that. I understand that a lot of you might not be. Uh, but I like country music for a lot of reasons. Um, and this isn't a sermon about country music, though I could do that. But I like country music a lot because a lot of their songs are very clever. You know what I mean? Like... They're just witty. They have just their storytelling, very creative. Um, I think a close second, a very trailing close second could be rap music. They can be clever sometimes. But usually country music, they got it, right? So there's this um, country song that I like a lot by Scotty McCreary. It's called In Between. And the idea of the song is, um, like, he likes this girl, and this girl's like, who is this guy? And he's like, hey, let me tell you a little bit about who I am. Um, I'm... I'm like a little bit like country boy, mud on my boots, but also like, but I'm not all the way there. Like sometimes I dress up, but I'm not all the way dressed up. I'm, I'm in between, right? Um, he has this line like, I'm, I'm more than one, one glass and I'm done, but I'm not, you know, keep on pouring. Like if it's a country song, they have to talk about drinking, right? So like this whole song is about like, I'm kind of this, but I'm also kind of this. Like I'm not all here. And I'm not all here, I'm, I'm in between. And I think about that song and I'm like, I'm, I'm a lot like that, right? I'm, I'm not one of those guys who's like all in. I mean, there's, there's, I think most of us are like that. There's a few of us who aren't. Like there are some people who are like all in to Star Wars. Um, and most of us, right, are like just kind of in between. We're in between not, we kind of hold everything at an arm's length. Most of us, for most of the time. But if we're honest, a lot of us do that in ways we shouldn't too, right? Like, how many of us would say we're in between about our Christianity? We're, we're not all in about this church thing. Like, this, this thing Jesus is talking about, this whole Jesus thing, it's good, I like it, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of in between. I'm going to keep it at an arm's length. I don't want to be all in. That just sounds a little crazy. I don't want to be like those crazy people who are all about Jesus all the time. So I'm just, I'm just going to be in between. But what would happen if a group of people 
were so captured by the gospel, their hearts were so stirred by what Jesus had done and who he is, that it just spills over and they're saying, I'm not going to be in between anymore. I'm going to be devoted. I'm all in. What we're going to see in our text this morning in the book of Acts is that there was a group of people who that happened to. There's a group of people that learned who Jesus was, saw what he was, and they couldn't help but spill over in full-on devotion. If you remember, we're working our way through the book of Acts, and the church is just starting to form. This is very early stages. And, and Peter had just preached a message to th- thousands of Jews and told them, like, you killed Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. And you need to repent. And they repented. They were cut to the heart. And thousands of people got saved. You guys remember that? Just a couple weeks ago. And now we're going to see what happens. What happens to those people? Because when they were cut to the heart, something changed. It didn't just change what they did on Sunday morning, but it changed their very daily lives every single day. And so what this text is going to do for us, it's going to kind of paint a picture of what that looks like, what happens when that happens to people. Now, I'll be honest, this this text, uh, a lot of narrative in general can be, in scripture, can be kind of hard to navigate at times, right? Like, is this a prescriptive text? Like, does God give this to us to tell us, like, we need to do exactly what they did? Or is it more, like, descriptive? Is it, um, here's just a picture of some things that happened, right? It doesn't mean you go and repeat it, but I just want you to know what happened. And, and texts sometimes can be hard that way. And this text, at times, can, can do that. In fact, there's a lot of really bad ideas that people have tried to do because of this very text we're going to study. But my goal this morning is for us to to kind of cut through that and say, here's what God has for us to learn from the early church. Warren Wearsby has this to say about the early church in this particular text. He says about the Christians, their Christian faith was a day-to-day reality, not a -a once-a-week routine. Why? Because the risen Christ was a living reality to them, and his resurrection power was at work in their lives through the Spirit. In fact, in verse 43, Sarah just read this. It says, and awe came upon every soul. That word awe is the same word we get uh, our word phobia from. It's, it's the idea of fear. But it's not like this scared fear, right? It's like this, it's the same physical response when you're afraid, right? Like it's that trembling, but they were trembling at the majesty of what God was doing. It's like when a husband sees his bride at the end of the aisle when they did get married, right? And they get weak need and some of them even pass out because they're so overwhelmed with emotion. That's the type of fear that we're talking about. And what does it do when you're standing in that kind of awe at the gospel? It changes the way you live and you become devoted. So the big idea today is for this. I want us to respond that way. And I want us to say at the end of this message that because our hearts have been captured by the gospel, we will be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Because our hearts have been captured by the gospel, we will be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look today at four specific ways that the early church was devoted and and subsequently, therefore, we should be devoted. 
So let's look back at our text, Acts 2. If you've got your Bibles open, look down at verse 42. Again, uh, we read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, I got real clever this week for you guys. Uh, so the first thing they're devoted to, what do you want to guess it is? The apostles' teaching. Real witty, I know, right? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. What, what do we mean by this? Essentially, what they were do, doing is they were devoted to, to true doctrine, so they're devoted to truth, and to living that out in obedience. Well, why do I say that? Well, first of all, is because Jesus commanded the apostles to do this, right? Do you remember the Great Commission? He told them to teach them all that he had commanded, right? So it would make sense that the apostles are now fulfilling that great commission. He's going, they're going around teaching all the people, all the things that Jesus had taught them, because that's what he told them to do, right? So for certain, some of the things that these apostles are teaching are all the things that Jesus said. We also know that um, they're teaching how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. How do we know that? Because he just did that. Right? Do you remember the sermon when Jesus said, "Hey, look at the book of Joel. The book of Joel. These things happen." Said were, Joel said these things are going to happen, and he said these things are being fulfilled before you right now. And you see throughout the rest of the book of Acts this constant preaching of the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled those promises. So we know that's one thing they were teaching. I think it's safe to assume they were probably teaching doctrine like we find in the Apostles' Creed. How many of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed? Right, um, fun fact, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the apostles. I know the name can be misleading. It actually came much later, a couple centuries later, but they call it, we call it the Apostles' Creed because the early church believed that was a good summation of what the apostles, the original apostles, the original 12 taught. The 12 and Paul, right? What they originally taught. It's a nice summation, right? So it probably included a lot of those things. The point here is they were teaching doctrine, truth. And it came first. It was, was most important. I mean, check down to verse 44. Luke writes, and all who, what's the word? Believed. See, they were believing things First, that's what brought them together was this belief around who Jesus was and what he had accomplished. We see this commitment, this focus, this devotion throughout the rest of the New Testament. In Hebrews 10, 23, the author writes, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And in 2 Timothy 4, 2, Paul writes to the young preacher Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season, not a season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So there is this emphasis, this importance of teaching the Bible and teaching truth. That was their foundation. It started there. And there's a lot of other things that they did, and we're going to find those other things, but it started with truth. But it wasn't just a devotion to the apostles' teaching as in truth, but the apostles' teaching as in obedience. Again, this is fulfilling the Great Commission. 
Matthew 28, 20. I'll put the actual verse up on the screen for you this time. Um, it says, Jesus commanded them, teaching them to do what? To observe all that I have commanded you. See, it's not just about knowing the truth. You can know the truth. That's great. But they needed to live it. The truth needed to spill out into their lives. And, and what we're going to find is, as we continue through our text this morning is what happens when that truth does actually spill out in their lives. What does it look like to actually walk in truth? Not just know it, but to live it. I don't know if any of you have seen uh, these signs floating around. How many of you have seen any of these signs in your neighborhood? I have, my neighbor has one of these. Um, these became pretty popular back around election time. Um, and we could talk all day long about which of these statements are true or not true and what they mean or whatever. But here's what's interesting to me. We live in a culture, right? And you've, you've probably heard this. I've heard this since I was like in college that we live in a postmodern culture and like truth doesn't matter and everybody, you can just believe what you want. And, and you know, so the truth is, um, the church is like, we need to stand on truth. And like those, all of those things are good. But this is what's fascinating to me. That list of statements right there, are those truth claims? Are they making truth claims? Yeah, that, for all intents and purposes, that's a creed, is it not? Now, this is what's interesting to me even more. The people that I know that would have a sign like this in their yard, do they live consistently with those statements that they claim? The people that I knew were fairly consistent not 100%. Do we have a creed that we stand on? Do we have a truth that is based on words of God, not secular ideas of man? Yeah, how many of us can live as consistently as that? Now, I'm not saying we all need to go out there and have signs in our yard that say, you know, in this house we believe in the five points of Calvinism or the five solas or, you know, the Bible is God's inerrant word. Like, if you want to do that, it's fine. But what I'm more interested in is us actually living what we believe. We don't need yard signs. It's just interesting because doctrine and truth matter to them. It's not doctrine and truth we agree with, but it matters. And so much of the church is backing away from doctrine and truth at a time when we need it most. So what does that mean for us? I think first is this. We need to pursue right doctrine. Because listen, being devoted is more than just knowing facts about the Bible. Like the Bible is super important. It's the most important thing we have, right? If I'm not here sharing with you God's word, then y'all should just go home. But we can't just say, well, I got the Bible and I, and I don't need anything else. Like we believe in scripture alone, but not you alone with scripture. Did you know that a large majority of the heresies throughout the church history have come from people who are like, yeah, but look what the Bible says. You ever have a Jehovah's Witness come to your door? You know what they do? 
They pull out their Bibles. In fact, I bet a lot of them know it better than I do. But what they do is they don't look back and say, how has the church understood scripture throughout history? They reject the Apostles' Creed. See, because here's the thing. We all read the Bible theologically. Did you know that? You have a theology. You believe something to be true about God. You believe something true to be true about the Bible. And when you read your Bible, you interpret it through that lens. My question for you is, is your lens accurate? Do you have good theology? So we need to pursue that. Shameless plug for systematic theology. Tuesday mornings at 6 a.m., Wednesdays at lunchtime. We'll help you. We'll help you learn what is the church taught throughout history about who God is, who Jesus is, what the Bible is. We want you to know those things because they matter. And they matter because we need right doctrine and right living. You live what you believe. So we need to pursue both knowing doctrine and living it. Did you know that Satan has better theology than you do? Not because he's omniscient and all-knowing, but because he's had a couple thousand years to learn it. He has better theology than we do. So just knowing doesn't automatically mean that you're righteous and you're living properly. And your pastors and your elders, we labor. That's why God, it was God has called us to to help you learn to live rightly based on what's true. That's why we preach on Sunday morning. That's why we have small groups where you can go and say, okay, pastor said this, what does that mean for me this week? That's why we have systematic theology. That's why the church bought you, all of you, access to Right Now Media so you can go online and hear good Bible teaching taught for you at any time you want, right on your phones. So here's my question for you. Are you really serious about truth? Does it really matter to you? Are you devoted or do you keep it at an arm's length? Do you devote yourselves to your pastor's teaching? Do you, how about this, do you listen to teachers, authors, or podcasters that you know your pastors would cringe at? they found out. I mean, you're like, I don't know. Well, do you ask? Do you seek out help to say, is this somebody that's reliable? Is this book true? Is this podcast something that's beneficial for me to listen to? Do you question the truth claims made to you on a daily basis? Do you know what you're preached at every single day? Somebody's trying to get you to believe something all day, every day. Whether it's you should take this prescription drug or you should buy this soda or you believe this thing, do you question those? Or you just soak it in and let it wash over you without stopping to critically think, what, what is being sold to me here? I'll give you one example, right? Here's a question you can ask yourself. This thing that's being presented to me, how do they define the good life. I love country music. So for me, if I'm honest, you tell, when you ask me like, Drew, what's the good life? I'm like, 
sitting on a front porch with my dog, looking at a sunset, my kids playing in the front yard, drinking some sweet tea, nobody else around, right? That's a good life. Why? Because that's what I hear when I listen to my music. But is that, is that the good life divine by scripture? Now, I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. There's a lot of good things. There's nothing wrong with sitting on a front porch and enjoying sweet tea. But is that the good life? And people who don't do that, are they not living the good life? That's just one example. These are themes and ideas and questions that are being presented and answered for you. And do you think critically about the way you answer that? And does it line up with God's word? Listen, church, we have the truth. We have it. What are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? So the first way we be devoted is being devoted to the apostles' teaching. The second is this, devoted to the fellowship. I get this, again, right from verse 42, and they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, the idea here, right, is being completely and fully present in generosity. Where do I get that from? Well, I get it from this word fellowship. Uh, now, the word behind this is the Greek word koinonia. It's a really cool word for youth groups to use to name their youth group. Um, I know that because my youth group is called koinonia. Um, I don't know why. I guess we like using Greek words for thing. Uh, but koinonia is this word fellowship. And if you grew up in church culture, you may have heard this word used a lot, right? So like after church, like, oh man, my mom and dad, they stayed after church all the time, always fellowshipping with people, right? So like you get this idea of fellowship is like hanging out, being cordial, talking about your kids' sports, right? Or um, we use it like, hey, why don't you come for uh, all church fellowship this Sunday after church? We're going to have um, some food, we're going to have some Swedish meatballs and you know, the sweet potato casserole, like, come on over. So we think like fellowship is somehow like some meal. But that's not biblical fellowship. I thought those things are bad. I love sweet potato casserole, right? But those aren't, those aren't fellowship. What is fellowship is this. Jump down to verse 44. And it said, all who believed were together and had all things in common. So fellowship is, first of all, being present. So that phrase, we're together, literally means they were physically in the same place. In fact, some translations actually translate the word as um, all who believed were in the same place. That's, that's actually what it means, meaning face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder relationships. Like they, they were around each other in a physical sense. But this also says they had all things in common. In verse 45, Luke clarifies for us what he means by that. It says, in common, it means they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I want to clarify something here for us. Do you remember when I said that this passage can be used for bad ideas sometimes? This is one example, right? So I'll just say this straight up front. This is not talking about socialism and communism, 
Okay. Now I could preach a whole sermon and go through all scripture and explain why socialism and communism are completely unbiblical ideas, but I just want to point out why this text for sure is not that. Three really quick reasons and then we'll get back. Um, first, notice that it's voluntary, right? Nobody's forcing them to give their stuff up. Like this isn't some government mandate saying you must do this. This is all voluntary. They did it because they loved one another. Number two, they still had private property. How do I know? Because like two verses later, it says they were going from house to house, right? They were going to each other's house. They, they didn't give up everything. They still had private possessions. So it wasn't this big old commune, right? Where like everybody shares everything and there's no private property, right? No, it was like a willingness to give of their stuff. Third is this. Um, you remember where a lot of these uh, new converts came from. Do you remember when Peter preached and thousands of people got saved? Remember where thousands of those people were from? They weren't from Jerusalem. Meaning, this wasn't their hometown. Meaning, they had a lot of stuff still back home. <laughs> they were selling the stuff that they had with them, that they brought with them to Jerusalem because they came for the Feast of Pentecost. So three reasons right there why this passage is not teaching socialism, communism. What it is teaching, it is teaching generosity. It's teaching this idea that they realize Jesus had come, he died, he rose again, he was the savior of the world, and all this stuff that I have is not given to me for my own benefit, it's given to me to bless others. And they looked around and see what, they, what it says? They were generously giving to whom? To those in need. See, what they had to do is they had to be present to see who had need. It's really hard to know how you can bless somebody if you're not around them. It's really hard to know if somebody has a need if you never see them. And so they were around each other, in each other's lives, aware, man, that guy, he doesn't have enough money to buy his family food, so I got this pot. I don't have money, right, but I have this pot, so I'm gonna sell this pot, get some money, so I can help this person buy food. I think that's what blows my mind about this, right? Is it, they weren't just giving of their excess, right? A lot of times, like, oh, I have some extra cash, so I, I guess I'll... I don't need it, so I guess I'll give it to this guy. Like, these people didn't have cash, so they took their stuff, sold it, so they could get cash to give to somebody else. Now, they probably didn't use cash back then, but you see what I'm saying? That's how much they loved each other. That is koinonia. See, they understood Jesus came with a mission to save the world, and we are on mission to share that news. And if there is something that is in the way from somebody being able to participate in what God is doing, I'm gonna remove that barrier. That's the heart. See, they recognize that because Jesus died and forgave their sins, They didn't need that stuff anymore. They could bless others with it. Can I, can I explain, give you an example of what this might look like? 
So my, uh, you may not have seen my wife a lot lately. Um, since my daughter Ivy was born, she'll be eight months old in about a week and a half. Um, Catherine has struggled with uh, really debilitating migraines a um, couple times a week. Um, so much so that, you know, she can't do a lot. I don't know if you've ever dealt with those yourself or if you know somebody else, but it's, it's, it's a struggle. And it really breaks her heart because she can't do a lot um, when she does that. But in our small group, she has shared, um, shared this with the girls in her small group and asked for prayer, and they've been trying their best to encourage her. Well, um, the Flaggies have been a part of our small group for a couple months now, and I'm so grateful for them. I love uh, their heart and them being part of our group, which has been together for like two years. So it was a big step of faith for them uh, to join a group of a bunch of young whippersnappers who've been hanging out together for two years. But they came in and just opened up their lives and their home. And Jeannie uh, um, came up to my wife and said, hey, I know you've been struggling with these migraines. Um, and said, I, I, want, I want you to be able to get some, some therapeutic massage. It's been really helpful and, um, for her. And... Um, dealing with her own headaches and said, I don't want to pay for that. So that way she can have some relief. And what drives somebody to do that? What's the heart behind that? It's koinonia. It's understanding that God has blessed them so they can bless others. It's understanding that there's a mission that has to be accomplished here and headaches can get in the way of my wife being able to accomplish her mission with those girls in that small group. It's koinonia. Fellowship. A good way to think of fellowship, I think, is thinking about kind of like membership. I'm not talking about like Costco membership, as cool as Costco is, and... They need to bring those samples back, amen? <laughs> Goodness gracious, so boring there now. Bring me my samples. But membership is, is more like this. Um, in Romans 12, turn your Bibles there real quick, if you, if you can. Romans 12, verse 4 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And this phrase right here, I want you to underline this. And individually, members one of another. See, membership, right, this koinonia, this fellowship is us belonging to one another. This is really radical thinking, right, because it's, it's bigger than just um, having Instagram followers, right? It's bigger than just having some friends you get together with at church. See, being a member is being at the disposal of your community. You are there to be used by them, right? My hand serves my body. My body doesn't serve my hand. It's giving over what you have to be used for the needs of your community, right? And not just being like sympathetic to those needs and to those struggles, the ups and downs, like, oh man, I feel bad, yeah, my... My church is going through a hard time. My friend's going through a hard time. It's actually entering, entering in those hard times, being part of those hard times and the celebrations. It's rejecting the notion that you make your own identity, but know and embrace who you are by your connection to things larger than yourself. Your community 
where you live, your place in history, and ultimately in God. And we as Christians, ultimately our membership is found, our fellowship is found in Jesus Christ. Our unity runs deeper than any other unity because we have been bought with a price. We are not our own, and we belong to him, and we belong one to another. So really practically, what does this look like? It means being present. I get that sometimes we need to be virtual for a season, right? COVID has forced us to be virtual and a lot of people too, but, but if anything, COVID has proven how much more we need to be together, how much we have to be in each other's lives. Like you can't know what somebody's going through if you're not in their life. Face to face, shoulder to shoulder, and not just physically present, but like mentally and emotionally present. Like when you show up to church, do you like make a beeline for the door as soon as things are over? Or do you linger? And when you're in a conversation with somebody, are, are you here or is your brain like constantly somewhere else? Oh man, this person doesn't shut up. <laughs> are you emotionally distant? You keep your arms out like, ah, don't, I don't want anybody that close. Are you present? And are you generous? Here at Redemption, we talk a lot about being generous with your time, talents, and treasures. I like that. Nice alliteration, right? So you can't forget. Time, talents, and treasure. Right? Time. That's a huge one. You guys know the saying, right? How do, how do, how do kids spell love? T-I-M-E. You may say, like, Drew, I'm too busy for relationships. I don't got that kind of time. I'll tell you this. If you're too busy for relationships, you're too busy. My coach used to tell me all the time when I was in high school because I hated running on the weekends when we didn't have practice. Um, he, I'd be like, oh, coach, I don't have time. And you know what he'd say to me? He'd say, Drew, you don't take the time, you make the time. If you don't have time for relationships, make the time. Your talents, you've been given, everybody's been given a talent, a gift to be used for the body of Christ. And did you know that we, we use the word spiritual a lot of times, spiritual gifts. Did you know in the Greek, that's trans, that word spiritual is um, charis? You know, what other word we, you know what other word that's translated as? Grace. Grace gifts. Your gift was given to you by God as an act of grace for you to bless others. And of course, your treasures. And this is bigger than just giving to the church financially. As much as you do and we love it, it's more than that. Money's great, but your stuff, your stuff isn't yours. Your stuff is God's. And it's to be used to bless others. Listen, church, we have gifts from God. What are we going to do with them? They were devoted to the fellowship. They were also devoted to the breaking of bread, right? We're just working our way here through the verse, right? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship to the breaking of bread. The idea here of breaking bread, right, is they were welcoming each other into their lives through hospitality and communion. The idea of breaking of bread here, um, we, hear, we use it a lot in our Christian culture, and we often talk about um, communion. Uh, but in 
in scripture, whenever it's used, um, it's used in kind of one or two, one to two different ways, right? Uh, depending on the context. So either communion, but a lot of times it's talking about just like sharing a meal. And it's in this context in particular, most commentators believe that it's actually referring to both. Why do I say that? Jump down to verse 46. Look what it says. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, right? So you have that part. And then they did what? They received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they're talking about sharing a meal together. And this is hard for us to grasp. Like, why, why is that such a big deal, right? Because we have like McDonald's on every other corner. Um, I think there are more restaurants in Fort Wayne than there are houses. It's like the city of restaurants. It blows my mind. And most of them are like chain restaurants. This is the first city that I've ever been to, been to where like they put in a Hardee's. Like most Hardee's are leaving cities, but like Hardee's like, no, we're coming to Fort Wayne because they love food. So we don't get this, but listen, back in Bible times, right, people spent hours acquiring food and preparing food. In fact, most of people's lives, for a majority of the culture, most people's lives were spent just getting things to eat. And so to welcome somebody into your home and to share a meal, you were sharing your family's very own sustenance. It wasn't like, oh, man, we run out of food. We got to go over to Kroger. You ran out of food. You ran out of food. So it was a big deal to welcome somebody into your home. But look at what it says. They were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. They were exceedingly excited to share their food, their lives. They were happy to do so. And they're doing it with communion taking time in every meal to remember what Jesus had done, obeying his command, right? Do this as often, or as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, right? So like we're gonna remember Jesus every time we gather because he's the reason we get to gather. He's the one that has brought us near. We were far from God and now we get to feast at his table and at the wedding feast of the lamb, at the end of the age, all those who believed in Jesus will feast together. Why would they not share in that meal? They are now welcomed as family at their heavenly father's table. And they wanted to share in that together. And you say, Drew, Drew, we live differently, man. Like food and relationships are different now. Like you said, we have like McDonald's and restaurants and stuff. Like, is it really that different though? Like, for crying out loud, we have a whole channel dedicated to food. And it was so successful, they created another one called the Cooking Channel. I, it's, it's why y'all hate going to family dinners at holiday times with people you don't like. Because food is still a big deal. Sharing a meal. So what do you think we should do then? we're really devoted, we're not going to hold this thing at an arm's length anymore, what do you think we do? I think we practice hospitality. Do you welcome people in? I know it's risky, like, ah, man, my, my decorating, it's so 1990s. Like, I don't care. Maybe I'll help you fix that, but what's more important is I get to be part of your life, Right? It's risky letting somebody in your home and sharing a meal. What if they don't like my cooking? I don't care. I want to know you. 
because you're my brother in Christ, you're my sister in Christ. That's hospitality. Rosaria Butterfield put it this way, if you haven't read her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, I highly recommend it. Shameless plug for Right Now Media, again, you can do her book study in Right Now Media with her leading you through it. Go check it out. But this is what she says. She says, let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community gymnasium, or garden, pause. Notice that you don't just have to have a big house. Anything you have, right? For the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that is the point. Building the church and living like a family, the family of God. Church, we have our own spaces, right? What are we going to do with them? The last way they were devoted is this. They were devoted to the prayers. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The last clause here in this sentence in verse 42. idea here is this, just this daily intentional dependence on and gratitude to God. Do you notice the interesting way he phrased this, right? Because you're like, yeah, we're all devoted to prayer, but it's not just prayers in general. It's the prayers, right? There's, a, there's this definite article why would he say that? Well, most commentators believe that they're referring to the formal Jewish prayers at the temple. Because remember, Christianity at this point um, in history is, is very much a Jewish faith, right? They, they didn't see themselves as a separate religion. And it tells us, actually, in verse 46, jump down to verse 46, it says, and day by day, attending the what? Attending the what? The temple. What are you doing in the temple? They prayed. Right? So there was this intentionality, right? They were, there was intentionally going to the temple together to pray. Do you remember what happened in the temple a mere 50 days before this? There was a big curtain in there, right? Do you remember what happened to that curtain? It got torn in two. When their Savior, who they believe to, is God, who they saw again risen from the dead, that temple, that temple curtain was torn in two, and now every day they go down to that temple. What do you think they do? They rush in and they pray. How could they not? The temple was torn in two. They had access to God. Their Savior was alive. Why would they not go and pray at all the times that they were used to praying, but now they pray in Jesus' name? They pray knowing the answer to all the psalms they prayed year after year after year. And they did it praising God. I mean, wouldn't you? You saw the risen Christ. God was doing something big. We pray to commune with God. And that is precisely why Jesus came. Did you know that? Jesus came so you can commune with God, to remove the barrier of sin that has separated you. In fact, W.H. Griffith Thomas says this, the mark of a true church is to cherish communion with God. They came streaming in as believers now saying, our God is alive. 
So here's what we need to do. I think, first of all, we need to be intentional. Listen, I, I love spontaneous, heartfelt prayer. Like, you're talking to somebody and somebody's like, man, can I pray for you right now? Like, that needs to happen. And it happens a lot in the church, and I love it. But there, if we, that's all we rely on for prayer is like when we get some feeling that we need to pray for somebody, let's be honest, how many of us are going to pray a whole lot? Like, we need intentionally set-apart time to pray. That's why you all come to church every Sunday, right? We have time set aside to hear the word, to praise God, because we forget. You're like, wow, but it's, it's so rote, and it can become such a tradition and lose its meaning. But you come every Sunday. Why doesn't this lose meaning? Because you care. That's why. So you, we need to be intentional to set time aside and say, I'm going to pray today, every day at this time. And I find, I don't know about you, but like I struggle with like repeating myself a lot and like I, I don't always know what words to pray. Like get some prayer aids. Um, this is a great prayer aid right here. You ever read the Psalms? And you're like, man, that's, man, that Psalm spoke to me. Pray it. Pray it to God. Say, God, these are my words. Um, the ESV, so this is an ESV Bible, they just uh, recently published a book called the ESV Prayer Bible. And throughout the Bible, it's just sprinkled with prayers from guys like Charles Spurgeon or John Calvin, uh, lots of folks throughout church history. And there's just prayers sprinkled in there. When there's a passage of scripture that one of these people prayed a prayer about, they'll put it in there and you can use that as your own prayer. Uh, books like The Valley of Vision, or Every Moment Holy. These are books of prayers that just put words, like if you don't know, like I don't know what to pray. But that Don't let that be an excuse. I remember Matt Chandler, I listened to a sermon him recently. He's like venting about people saying like, ah, oh, pastor, I don't know how to pray. And this is what he said. He said, do you know how to say, God, I don't know how to pray? <laughs> then you know how to pray, right? Because it's just talking to God. But we need to be intentional. And I think we need to do it together. And this is really hard for us introverts. I'm an introvert. I don't love praying out loud. Um, I get voluntold to do it on Sunday mornings. Uh, I say voluntold. I mean, I like to pray. Don't get me wrong. But like, it's hard, right? Sometimes like people are going to hear me. I'm going to say the right words. But it's important. It's important to pray together. And maybe if you're an introvert and you're like, I'm kind of uncomfortable, maybe the first step is just to go back to that being present thing. And maybe you just need to be present when people pray out loud. We have a prayer and praise service coming up. Like, I don't want to come. Is it going to make me pray out loud? We won't make you pray out loud. What if you just came and just sat and listened to other people pray? And maybe in your heart, you pray along with them. That's, that's the step one, right? And sometimes it takes steps. But you can live your life like this. Ah, prayer with other people. I'm gonna, I don't know if I want to do that. Or you can say, I'm going to be fully devoted. And it's going to be scary. And it's going to be hard. But Jesus died and rose again, so I can do that very thing. And it's what I need the most. So I'm in. Listen, church, we have direct access and communion with God. We do. What are we going to do about it?
So my question for you this morning is, are you living halfway? Are you living in between? Are you holding back in some way? And maybe as we went through each of these four things, there was one or two that stuck out to you and you're like, you know, I, I do hold back there. I'm not all the way in. This is what I want you to do. First, I want you to just identify what that is and then remind yourself and do it often what God has done for you in the gospel. What I mean by that is, like, ah, I don't want to get into that theology thing. I want you to remind you that Jesus died and rose again so you can know your God. And if theology and doctrine is truth is a great way for you to know your God better. Maybe it's a fellowship, like, I've been hurt, or I don't, I don't know what I have to give. Remember that Jesus died and rose again so you could give to others, so you can be in fellowship and relationship with others. He met your need. Can you meet somebody else's need? Maybe you're like, oh, ah, my house is so dirty all the time. I don't want to let people in my house. That sounds weird. I don't like family. I don't even like my own family. Why do I let other families in my house, right? God welcomed you into his family. Jesus died and rose again so you could be a child of God. Your elder brother goes to God for you and is welcoming you to the feast. Can't you welcome others into your home, into your life? In prayer, I don't know how to pray. Jesus died and rose again so you can know your God and talk to him and share your heart with him and do it with others who won't judge you, who want to join you in that. So take those steps, take those steps, even if it's baby steps, to say, I'm gonna be more devoted. I'm not gonna live halfway. I'm not gonna hold my arms out. And I get it's risky. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to give of yourself in that way, to be all in. But Jesus himself said, he who tries to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And he came that we may have life and life to the full. So the risk is worth it. The risk is worth it to be all in, to be devoted. I pray that we will all do that. God, we love you. God, for sending your son. And we, as we think about just last week celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus, God, and all that it accomplished, God, we want that to spill over into our daily life. We want to be devoted. We want to be all in. We recognize we can't do that without the Holy Spirit. So I ask that even today, the Holy Spirit would work to remove the barriers, the risks, the, the, the fears, the things that hold us back from wanting to be all in. Help us be so caught up, so in awe, trembling at the beauty of you and what you've done that we can't help but be devoted. We ask this thing in the, things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.